Thanks, everyone. I'm Travis Turney here with Analytics Club Boston. We really appreciate you coming out to check out this great panel on data science and information security tonight. We've got three incredible speakers here for you. I just wanted to kind of give you a little bit of their backgrounds real quick, and then we'll, we'll kick it off. So to my left here, we have Bob Rudis. Bob's a chief security data scientist at Rapid7, frequent blogger at rud.is, co-author of Data Driven Security, and Arden R open source uh, contributor. Um, also, we have Mark Gerner. So Mark is a senior economic data scientist with Booz Allen, sitting to Bob's left. Uh, an analytics leader with 10 years of experience uh, designing, implementing, and communicating results of analyses in support of customer engagement, strategic planning, and programmatic portfolio management related activities. Uh, finally, to the left, we have Kalpesh Chef, or Chef for short, co-founder and CEO of Yaksa, a security startup here in the Boston area uh, with over 20 years of technical experience in data networking, network security, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, uh, and cluster computing. Uh, before co-founding Yaksa, Chef was Senior Technical Director of DRNS Technologies, acquired uh, by Finn Mechanica. Finn Mechanica. I'm saying that right. Uh, director of River Delta Networks, uh, and fifth employee of Digital Technology. Uh, also co-author of Vita 41.6 and the ANSI Standard, and spoken at numerous trade conferences as an expert panel member. Um, so I figured to kick it off here tonight, uh, we can kind of start with Bob. Uh, we had some uh, interesting developments in the world of security today uh, with the, uh, the Petya ransomware. Uh, and maybe we just talk a little bit about some of the ways, um, you know, some of the work that you've been doing around um, using data to kind of identify and anticipate some of these emerging threats. So I need to probably press that. There we go. I think that's good. Uh, so not so much for today, uh, but because today's hard. So everyone knows there was a big ransomware today, right? Okay. Um, today's hard because the attackers were kind of smart. Um, I actually appreciate that. Like I've been armed for a long time. It's 2017. I have a high, high bar for attacks, and these guys did a pretty good job. Um, but so I was like, for WannaCry, it's a little bit of a different story. So we, one thing we do, so Rapid7, one thing we do is we scan the internet like every day, different things, different times. Uh, one thing we've been doing every month, but we've now been switching to every week since uh, about the time the Shadow Brokers released the NSA hacks, uh, was to do an actual full probe for SMB looking for devices that are out there as well too. So we tried to, um, on the Rapid7 lab side, from an internet security side or internet exposure side, look to see like how people behave on the internet, whether they're deploying on the internet, what's out there. So we've been tracking on a regular basis how the ebbs and flows of what SMB is happening on the internet. So that's one big area where we've been looking for those kinds of trends and we kind of see what those trends are. We get to report back to customers. We get to just report stuff back out to authorities. Uh, what the actual overall exposure looks like to see what's happening there. Um, to just try to give people an idea of how that exposure looks like externally. This one's a little bit more different though, because this is actually where the, like, I think the blood, sweat, and tears of internal security teams who still have very little experience with doing any kind of data analysis or having any kind of visibility into what's happening on the networks can't really see the same kind of things that we can see and understand the same kind of exposure that we can understand on the internet side. So it becomes a lot harder for them to figure stuff out when the attackers do get smart like this. Uh, we had a lot of noisy data last time that everyone could tap into, look at stuff. Be, uh, we did a lot of analysis, we did a lot of graphs. Um, this one's a lot harder. There wasn't a lot to take a look at. We could tell you what the external exposure for it is, but in terms of what's going to happen in, like, on internal networks, like, I think, unfortunately, today is the, the new normal, and 
part of what we try to do, and I've been trying to do outside of Rapid7, is help the internal folks have that same kind of visibility, understand the same kind of things, look at data the same way, so they can understand their exposure and do the same kind of stuff that we're doing on an aggregate scale. Are there warning signs that an attack uh, or some sort of particular campaign might happen that um, you guys can use to kind of see if something's coming down the road? Yeah, so for the, so while we do scanning of the internet, we also have a network of honeypots around the globe mostly in cloud providers, but it gives us a view from like 300 different sensors. Uh, we can actually see what's happening out there, and we, we fine-tune them uh, after various things happen. So right around the time WannaCry was about to happen, right after the Shadow Brokers release, we fine-tuned it to be able to detect SMB things that we weren't looking for in a more deliberate way before. And we can kind of give, like, see the ebbs and flow of activity there a little bit better to give heads up uh, from a threat intel perspective, and I think it's the trying to communicate and trying to build into the platform, because we have a platform too, but uh, you don't necessarily need to have our stuff to do things as well too, but trying to give people the, uh, the tools or the knowledge or the capability to build that same, we should be looking at these kinds of things, we should be using them as, as tracking baselines, looking at important things, trying to find things out, and helping them understand how they can kind of go about doing that, whether they need to buy a $3 billion solution or just kind of go out and grab some open source stuff and do it themselves. Like I, I'm more the roll up your sleeves, get it done yourself kind of thing than go encourage someone to spend a bunch of million dollars on stuff. I, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, if, we, if you can get a leg up by actually having a place that helps you get that data to a point where you can do that, I think it helps too. Chef, did you have any thought about kind of um, identifying uh, emerging threats or any, any things that you guys are doing kind of in the research area? Yeah, so I think uh, what Bob mentioned is more from the external threats perspective, but we focus on the internal. And most of the hackers, they try to have the threat vectors which ultimately leads to one of the users who is going to get compromised somehow, whether by social engineering or stealing their passwords or somewhere. That is how that is an entry into the network. And then the rest is the history. So we focus on those uh, attack vectors where users' login password gets compromised and then try to see what the activities those people are doing and how they compare with their own activities in the past. And that is how we do the behavioral fingerprinting of the individual user and try to detect that before the attack is going to happen, these are the kind of precursor to activities that somebody else is going to be doing, pretending to be you, and that's where we focus on. Mark, do you have any thoughts from kind of like a consulting perspective of how uh, you know, uh, a booze customer might uh, come to, to you guys to kind of say like, hey, you know, we're, we're looking to uh, approach this problem, like, well, where would we start from, you know, a process, systems, or people perspective? Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, so, the one comment I'll say is, and this is, my perspective is slightly different than these folks. Um, I have not been in the security domain for a very long time. My area of expertise was actually customer and behavioral analytics. I have been asked by Booz Allen to provide more of a fresh perspective to how we're looking at it, and that is, can we look back at our security landscape and see what else we can be doing? So, Booz Allen undertakes these challenges in a number of different ways. Um, certainly, we work very closely with the cyber and security teams that are on the ground in these companies to understand what are the challenges that are kind of going on in there. We'll come in, we'll do assessments, we'll do penetration tests. We'll try to get in there early enough to try to help them figure out where there may be holes in the process. But as you pointed out in this case, these are not easy ones to identify well in advance. So one of the other things that we start thinking about is how else can we collect data that might be valuable for us to start thinking about this problem. And so 
from a behavioral perspective, one of the interesting pieces is a lot of these companies have now stood up security teams and there's actually new data that's coming in because you have analysts that are reacting to these threats. So the analysts themselves and how they react is a data set in itself to help us understand how this specific threat might be different than another threat potential. So um, that's one area that we have started focusing on, which is again, say, it's hard for us to predict something getting into the network. It's much easier for us to focus on data points that we know are always gonna be there identify what that baseline might look like, and then compare that to a baseline of today. Um, so, like you said, I think uh, there's a lot of folks really trying to dig in and understand this bottom up. Um, we're generally thinking about this in a couple of different perspectives, sometimes even going top down to say, okay, well, what can we understand about the environment today that's different today than it was a week ago or under one cry or whatever else. So you mentioned kind of, you know, making sure that you have uh, the right data in order to even have an analysis. Um, Bob, what are some of the ways that um, we're looking at from maybe like the research team for like, what are the data sources that we, we wish we had so that we could kind of do our, our next generation of analyses? I mean, I think, so I think we have more data, well, so I, I've been around, I, right here, I've been around a while. Um, back in the day, like there, like I would have killed for the same logs that we have now uh, from the same number of devices and from things that aren't even related to security. Uh, at, at all either. So I, I think we're awash in data, and I'm, I'm not sure we have missing data at this point. Uh, I don't think I don't think the data not being there is actually the core problem. I think it's organizations not really understanding how to utilize that data, um, and, I, and the problem with that is, or the challenge for that is, it isn't a, in a single like white. I'm rapid set up company, so it isn't a single product or a single service. <laughs> that's gonna actually tile it up in a nice little bow for you and make it all work for you. I don't care who you are, I don't care what company you are, there isn't a single thing you're gonna be able to do um, that does it. It's a lot like what, what you're doing with is, like you go into an organization, you try to understand the organization, you try to look around, you pull in the right data sources and try to have a better understanding of what's happening, how things work, look at things in different angles than you were before. I, I actually don't think this problem is gonna be solved at the firewall log level, at the IDS log level, at the domain controller log level. I think it's going to be pulling in more of the HR data, pulling in more of the transactional type stuff that's happening with what people do, uh, maybe some network stuff component to it, but I don't think data is the problem. I think it's the ability to look at that data, pull that data in, know that you're actually, like, actually, there's a lot of places that have data that don't even put that data somewhere they can do stuff with it. You probably run that all the time. Um, so that's, that's I, I think the problem is we have, we, we are washing data, we have as much as we possibly need, but just probably aren't feeding it the right places and looking at it the right way. So, like in your experience, how do you kind of provide a you know a data lake or a layer or a system to kind of aggregate and make sense of all those you, different you, data you, sources? You did not just say data lake. I think it's uh, so one thing. So, like, having been in an enterprise, I've only been around this for about um, almost two years now. Uh, before that, I, I ran the DB at the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report. Before that, I've been in enterprises forever, so I've actually fought the good fight. Um, or I guess the mediocre fight is it's enterprises. And the, uh, there's a big challenge with actually getting people to understand that you should have access to data, that you should log this information, that you should save this information, that there should be an archive of it, that there should be an online version of it, that you should have it in multiple formats. Um, it's a real challenge getting organizations to really care, to care about this data from a security perspective. If it was, um, there's a couple of marketing or marketing-ish or the public-facing side of folks over here. Uh, if it was about eyeballs and getting conversions and all that kind of stuff, they'd be on that like in a heartbeat. 
but for some reason when you say yes, I want the HR fee to come into this so I can join it with this, like, nah, sorry, we can't get that. It's going to take time. There's a project manager, six months. It actually never kind of happened. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was an enterprise director. So um, I, I think that's the biggest thing is there's still not at a lot of different, I think it's changing. I think a lot of what's happened in the past 18 months is causing the change. But I think there's still a mindset where people don't understand that you need a lot of different types of data. So maybe your data lake term is not so bad, but um, at the same time, I, I, I did more of a buzzword than it is actually just get the data into the right places. When someone asks for something, make it happen. Don't make it a six month project to be able to do something like that. Um, and even if you have to go buy a ton of EMC hardware, because you're an enterprise, you can't just go out and do, do stuff in the cloud. You know, go do it, get the stuff available to you so you can actually make it. So you can say, I wish I could ask this question and just be able to ask that question or something. So Mark, how's Boost kind of helping clients manage that change? Because it's not just a technology problem, it's a, it could be a culture problem too. Yeah, no question. Uh, and no different for cyber than any other part of the company generally. Uh, all these uh, legacy systems that are coming up, there's usually departments that have their own data and they're not talking to other departments. And it's not just a cyber problem, the marketing people, they talk about efficiency, but to be honest with you, most of them can't really measure what they're doing either. Um, so it's, it's honestly an enterprise-wide challenge. I think this is actually an opportunity where theoretically security professionals have an opportunity to come back into the C-suite and start pushing down because these are the kind of threats that, are, that could really take companies down. Uh, from a marketing perspective, like I said, it's important, certainly a revenue driver, but because they can't prove it, it's not necessarily something where they're investing an incredible amount, uh, at least at the larger scale corporation. Certainly there are other companies that are doing this better, but when you already have a legacy in place, and you know, I, I, think, I think of it almost like uh, Moses crossing the desert, sometimes you need to get through 40 years, uh, <laughs> before you, and you got, need to get the new people in before that kind of change can happen. Uh, but the way that's actually done is through use cases. You really need to, as you pointed out, don't wait for all the data to come in. Pull in the data sets you can. Start doing some analysis. Identify where there's some value. Make sure that it's focused on a specific business case. Don't just do analysis for the heck of analysis. Identify a use case that's actually going to be valuable to the business. One that's going to be valuable to the CISO, but it's going to be valuable to the chief, chief, chief risk officer, to the CFO, ideally. At that point, you can actually start getting value and push that down. So, when we work with organizations, we are coming in and we are consistently asking the question, what is the business value of what you're doing? How can we translate that into business values? Somebody's gonna to wanna to invest money in it. Um, and, and by the way, that is no different in security as it is in every other domain, as I pointed out. So um, this is a common challenge. I think um, open source technologies are allowing us to now start complementing a lot of the tools that are already out there today to start pulling in very diverse data sets. Um, not every company has embraced that yet. Many of them are, it's gonna take a while. But for those that have, I think that's important. The other piece I'll say is there's one other trend that I think we're all seeing, and it's in, in general terms, if you're not a technology company today where analytics is your core competency, you're probably gonna struggle in a lot more areas than just security. Uh, Amazon bought Whole Foods, that's a sign that's starting to wake people up. A lot of these folks just didn't realize it. Uh, I think this is one of those use cases. It's a very important use case, and one that could have a massive impact on a corporation in the short term. Um, so I think security professionals really have an opportunity to use that if they can translate it back into, here's the impact, here's the risk to the organization, let's quantify that risk. Is this something you're willing to put up with? 
Um, and if not, then you know, here's what we need to do to fix it. So. Chef, how are you guys looking at this problem from kind of the insider threat perspective and helping folks aggregate these different data sources and make sense of it? Yeah, that, so that is one of the, I think, uh, one aspect that is currently missing. Even though we have lots of open source tools and technologies, there is no open source repository of anonymized data that people can learn from. Because what I have seen that the latest data that you can get, which is IPS, IDS, kind of KDD, and all those kind of things, but if you fast forward 14, 15 years, the networks have changed, the usage patterns have changed, tools and technologies have changed, and now how can you put that into the repository so that a lot more collective wisdom can be applied, which currently is missing. So there are silos of like organizations that Mark, you might be dealing with, and then Bob, you might be dealing with, but those people cannot put the anonymized data into the source of somewhere where university people and startups like us can go analyze and then have meaningful uh, intelligence or the kind of uh, solutions that can come out. So that's the one uh, area where we can change something. Second thing is that inside the thread that the way we deal with is all organization specific because every network, every uh, user base is going to be behaving differently. And you cannot apply the one-size-fits-all kind of scenario. And that is why those kind of customized data set is much more helpful and important for guys like us because we need to be able to articulate the business value. And the business value will come based on the type of data. It's a chicken or egg situation. Unless I get the data, I cannot give you. <laughs> this is a value prop that I'm going to be able to provide. And uh, open source will definitely help. The other part that I, we focus on very heavily is that users are the weakest link in the cybersecurity chain. Whether it is analytics or any of the other things, uh, data science, user will make mistake. No matter how sophisticated users are, hackers have much better tools and uh, mindset that they are going after. And you can see the latest um, uh, this uh, ransomware attack. Just four weeks, five weeks ago, we had a similar kind of thing. We hope that people learn, but apparently not. So we focus on those kind of user cases where people are going to make mistakes. How can you recover from that before it is too late? And that's how we analyze the data, do the data science principles, apply the complex algorithms, and try to discern the fingerprint of a valid user how this person is behaving today versus how this person behaved yesterday. So that at least before the damage is done company-wide, you know the threat vector where it started. And that's how we Yeah, so like, Bob, when you think about the, uh, the user challenge, it's we're always going to have it, right? There's always going to be some percentage of customers or users that are going to click on a bad link, or they're not going to use best practices, or not necessarily configure things. Um, the way that they ought to, like, how can we, you know, is that problem even solvable and should we attempt to solve it? Um, I mean, so yes, solvable is an interesting word. Um, is it manageable? Yeah, it's manageable. Um, the reason why I say that is, it, I think the biggest, so along with not being able to get the mindset around give us data when we ask for data, and it, I think it is that when you ask for data, not just give us data for the sake of data. Um, the other biggest mindset is organizations are still not treating this like, the economic battle that it really is. So people still think IT is IT, I'm gonna plug a server in, I'm gonna connect this up to here, I'm gonna do all this stuff, they just wire everything together. 
and it's like this, you know, director set kit of IT and everything's in work and all the servers and whatever, and no one's actually thinking about how to, like, and I'm, I'm, not, even th I'm not even talking about from a, like a war cyber warfare perspective either. I'm just talking about if, if you know that there's an economic battle happening against your organization, like if you know that you have a competitor moving into your area and it's going to, like, so we'll take a, if Walmart's gonna move into your area and you're a small retailer that does XYZ, you're gonna to try to do XYZ differently and better than, than, than Walmart's gonna do, so you stay alive and not just get killed by Walmart. You know, so we kind of know what attackers are doing. Their playbooks aren't that, like, they're, they're different, they're sophisticated, but they're not that sophisticated. And then we map them out all the time, like that's what a bunch of people get paid to do all the time, and all these profiles come out all the time. So you know what the playbooks are for the attackers, but the enterprises still refuse to design their IT systems, the way they do any kind of application deployments, the way they do any kind of user access, the way they do any kind of getting onto your network. With that mindset in mind, you like prevent the attacker from actually getting there to their goal and having to force them to go to some other place to do that. So by not thinking of it in terms of an economic battle and forcing the economics of the attacker so that they, and I'm not saying you like run faster than your friend with the bear, but it's still doing something so that they take an easier target so that when at some point you get down to the level where there are no easy targets, they have different things. The one quick, quick anecdote for that I'll share with you is, uh, so three years ago, is it three? Yeah, I think it's like three years ago. So three years ago, uh, we have been noticing a really significant pattern in the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report where credentials became the new thing and it was really gonna become, and it is kind of the new thing now, it's like it's the new normal. Uh, and honestly, if everyone, like, so I'm not, so I don't own stock in Okta, I just happen to love Okta. Um, and I know there's like lots of opinions about cloud identity providers or whatever, but the reality is if you two-factor the heck out of everything, like everything that matters, like that has data that actually has stuff that you care about, you two-factor the heck out of that, like you just took away the most lucrative thing that attackers are gonna go do. Now, we were really worried about saying that because if people listen to us, like maybe they wouldn't, but like if people actually did listen to us, um, that means attackers are gonna do a whole new level of destruction. They're doing it anyway with ransomware now. Like, we actually thought we'd cause the ransomware thing. Thankfully, we didn't, they're doing it themselves. Um, but, like, but you have to think about it in terms of that attacker mindset about changing the economics of them so they have to do things differently, slow them down, have them change their business case, have them re-research their business case, because honestly, that's what it is now. Back when I, back in the day when it was just starting out, it was a bunch of people having fun, notchy, warm, hot, whatever. Now it's like, hey, I'm gonna make a million dollars by, by locking, locking up an ISP. So I think there's that fundamental lack of treating like the economic battle and turning all the levers you can just as you would as a business to stop a competitor from beating you to stop the attackers. Can I ask a question? Sure, that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And this is for, for, for everyone. Oh, not <laughs> Turning this uh, example around slightly about economical incentives for the business, is there any way to, to quantify that economical benefit, right, from running a SOC, from running a, a really good, uh, basically having a really good team to manage security? Because Actually, yes, yeah, Chef did. I mean, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head. The risk analysis component, you did too. You both talked about actually analyzing the risk associated with any particular thing. There's a lot of different ways that we can, there's a lot of stuff you can borrow from the economic side, like your company does a lot of great job on the economic financial risk analysis for companies. You can take a lot of that same methodology, apply it straight down to the cyber cyber level and actually the adversarial defensive, offensive uh, level and be able to show actual dollar sign. I mean, it's not gonna happen all right in most organizations because they don't really have the level of sophistication that they do in IT as they would in finance. Some of them don't even have in finance. 
Um, but at the same time, you can actually apply that stuff so you can see what the actual losses would be and have it be as quantifiable as it is in a financial loss sense and be able to have them understand that. And it, you actually get a lot of mileage at the board level and at the board risk level if you actually talk in those terms and you get a lot of, like I've done it, like you get a lot of support when you talk in those terms. Yeah. The cool thing about this problem is there is a boundary on loss. And the boundary is market cap in many instances. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but that's a boundary. As mathematicians, we look for boundaries. That's the first boundary. Once you have a boundary, then you start tricking that down to probabilistic modeling. I actually think probabilistic modeling is a very good option here to know, given situation X, how are we going to fare in this kind of world? So we're doing a lot of that. Again, there's no precision to a point where we know certainly that this is the value here. But when you start comparing this versus somewhere else, Here's how much money we're going to make off this marketing campaign versus here how much money we're going to lose if something happens. Those are the kind of terms that you need to translate the back into fourth board and the CFO. And then they can start making those kinds of decisions at that high level. Um, I was just going to make one comment because I, I get excited when I can actually reference my education on something, so it's good. Um, you asked a question around you know, customers, users are probably going to make mistakes anyway, so how do we manage that? Um, there is a, a very uh, fudgy field right now called behavioral economics in, in many terms. And again, the interesting thing about it is that we believe that everybody's rational, which is completely wrong. <laughs> People are just irrational in everything that we do. Um, the cool thing is that if we can predict what rational would be, we can then go back in and make specific nudges to essentially stipulate, if we know that they're going to make mistakes, if we know that they're going to click on things, then we need to make sure that the things that they're clicking on and other folks are hacking in are nowhere inside of them when they're actually opening their emails up. So I think there's actually quite a bit that could be done most likely to at least reduce that threat if we start applying behavioral economic concepts to it. Um, I, I wouldn't say that we have actually tested it, but it's something I've been proposing. But I just like, so, so um, everybody here, so you all work at, okay, I'm assuming you all work, right? Because okay. you have to raise your hand for the next thing. So I'll, I, I could pick on you randomly. So how many, any one of you, how many phishing emails did your company get last week? You don't know, right? But, 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 but you don't know. Like, you actually don't even know if you got any. Is that true? So, I can guarantee we do. No, no, yeah, but, but you don't know how many, but what if you knew that your company got 100,000 of, like, just a for a big, would, would you be a little bit more careful in email if your company decided to tell you how many things actually occurred in that? So that, that's one of the behavioral nudges that we're talking about there. Like, it's the same thing as at your house. If you knew that this, like, you're, you're, you're looking at moving into a new neighborhood, and you're, you're, you have it's the Arabic data, so you know exactly how much bad stuff and good stuff happens in a particular area. You're going to choose to not move into a particular area or move to it depending on your risk tolerance for that. So the companies don't tell you things mostly because they're not even tracking it. But if they were to track it and tell you, like you would have a much better off chance of being careful about the things that you actually do. So I think that there's not that ability to do that uh, behavioral tweaking, to do the gamification, for lack of a better word, I hate using that word, but the gamification of how do you actually go about doing your daily job in a more secure way and embracing it from, from, from not just a technology standpoint, but from how you actually make decisions as a user standpoint. I think you better explain that too. Actually, uh, one of the things that uh, most fundamental, before you even go to the risk and all this modeling, if you go to many organizations and ask IT and then the management people, 
what is the most important data you have? Have you classified it or clustered it? And most of the time, the answer comes, oh, we have DLP. We don't need to worry about it. <laughs> so that's, that's your answer. That's the awareness at the C-suite as well as at IT level that they haven't done the most fundamental one-on-one kind of homework that I need to know at, at home, you always know that certain things are lying around on the sofa, but certain things are in the vault. So at least you have done the conscious analysis of what is important to you and what kind of protection or extra security you want to provide. We don't do the same thing on corporate data because it's not my data, it's a company's data. Now, at the end of the day, if IT or somebody has to be in charge of classifying it, then you start trickling down onto the what is the worst case scenario? What is the risk tolerance? What is that we are doing to accommodate or reduce the risk or manage the risk? That's the fundamental premise that we are missing in a lot of cases. Um, with that, I can open it up to other questions if anybody has any questions for the team. So I can have a segue to the last, last, uh, last uh, discussion. So what about information overload? So I think you, you raised a very interesting point. Hey, now we have 100,000 spams coming to go to us. But why should I care? So that's just, because I think it's, if you if you analyze the risks, right? So any any good sort of official get 25 threats every day. If you start acting on all those 25, so then like where is the, where is the boundary of this, right? So that's, that's one of the case, because we humans are very simpletons from, from understanding of this perspective. It's a very AI problem, right? So I can see that. You tell me, tell me when I should be sweating, I'll start sweating. Just don't come and say, these are 25 things and let's start. Like probably I'll never leave my, my bed, my bed if, if I have to react to all the 25. So what are your thoughts on, on the boundary cases of how much information is too much information? Because I think you are pretty much, a, how I would see is as pretty much a law firm of the future. Don't do this, don't do that, and all that, right? So just fix businesses rather than open them up to experiment things. Thoughts? <laughs> um, so uh, I can tell you what I've done in the past. Um, so it starts with doing some non-quantitative risk analysis. So you you basically have, and it goes, it literally goes back to everything, sorry, which I was saying going down. So if you don't know what you have is valuable, you don't know what you have anywhere. You, if you don't know, if you just don't know, you need to first get at least something. And it just needs to be one. And you don't need to be the whole company. Like if you're a giant company, like I've worked, I guess fortunately, or like until now, like, like unfortunately, like in giant corporations, now we're a nice small family organization. Um, we are, with like a thousand people, I almost know everybody, it's great. Um, the, uh, the, you find one area, one business unit, one one app manager, just find one and get them to start doing something and show the value that they're seeing with that and that it actually doesn't take the Herculean effort that everyone thinks it does and it's not a waste of time like everyone thinks it is. Like get one buy-in from one person and uh, one for one organization, like, so I can't tell you which one, but for what it was, uh, they decided that they finally wanted to become PCI compliant, like PCI, uh, like, like tier one compliant which is a whole other thing that means self-reporting and all that kind of stuff too. And so we actually leveraged that to help that, that one business unit understand all of the stuff in their business unit, not just the one application, but put everything in the context of that there, and then begin to trickle all that information out. So you can't tell every user everything all the time. I give you that, I, I use the phishing example primarily as a, if your users knew that you were being, that, you, that your company was being fished in a certain 
you know, throw whatever round numbers you want at it, X percent or X amount every given week, they, they, I guarantee you they pay differently. Like you can't tell them that and then here's our application. Like you can't just give them all the dashboardy stuff. But to the, the general public user, you can give them a stat. To the application people, you can give them five stats. To the board, you can give them 10 stats. They're used to seeing that kind of information from a financial risk analysis and how to move markets and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're really not stupid. Like they, they may feel like it if you're in cyber, like it may feel like you're like really talking to idiots, but they're actually not. They just haven't had the context before. And to what you were saying, the cyber, so I, I have this term, I don't know if I coined it, but it's the cybersecurity industrial complex. For 20 years, the cybersecurity industrial complex said, buy this thing, it's got blinky lights. When they blink, do something. When they don't, you're okay. And like we've lied to them for 20 years. Like as as a general security, cybersecurity, like everyone that's inside, everyone is has been lying to people for 20 years. Finally, it's not working, it's breaking down, it's like it's just happening everywhere. So I, I think we're at a point where they're either open to the oh, it's not just gonna be a push this button, lock the store, and everything's okay. You can do that in an incremental way, and you probably have to deal with that on a lot of different cases. Yeah, no, I um so a couple of things. I I've had actually an opportunity to uh to ask a very similar question. So we had, um, we were lucky to have a former Target system actually come over to Booz Allen recently, which was you know, a lot of fun for us because we can ask him a lot of questions around. They actually brought him in after the breach happened, which was helpful. <laughs> um, not the Target system before that. Right? So I actually asked Rad the first question, which was, you know, where did you start? And he basically came back in and said, well, they were looking at about a thousand data points a day. We brought it down to ten. Right. Um, what I didn't assume was those were the same data points that would stay there forever. Right. So we needed to validate that those were the data points that were important to us over time. But I needed to start with the first ten. I needed to start somewhere, and I think that's important. Um, in social and marketing domains, actually, this is a very similar problem that's been happening for the last five or ten years. Everyone's overwhelmed with social media conversation. Trump's out there tweeting every five minutes. Um, the challenge is most organizations, when this first happened, started reacting to maybe not every tweet, but basically they felt like they needed to respond to just about everything. Um, many of them still do and actually make things a lot worse for themselves. One of the ways that we solve that problem is to remind them that data is not looked at on a daily basis, but on a longitudinal basis. That's the first place I would tell anybody to start with, just to say, how is this day different than every other day? Um, how can we compare that over time? Those trends are the first, I mean, anomalies in that regard. How are things moving is actually a really good place to start. For that, you need a historical profile of data. But um, it's not a bad place to start with some initial metrics, right? If you don't know exactly where to start, start looking at things over time and see if things are changing. Those changes are a good place to start digging. And that's how analysts do their work, right? We need to start with very high-level descriptive summaries and dig deeper. We dig when we see things that are weird. And that's not a different use case in any problem. I, I, I think we're doing very similar things in the cyber security world as well. Yeah, information overload is a big uh, issue. And I think uh, most of the user base cannot uh, digest a lot of statistics. So if you go and start uh, blabbering out, uh, that uh, we have a million kind of uh, packets coming in, and then if it, there's a one which is having a malware and you happen to be doing this, it will cause a lot of irreparable harm, blah, blah, blah. Nothing is gonna stick. Uh, I think some of the analogy I used to take uh, with the defense world, I used to have the clearance, and 
the way security officer would train us, right? It is all about asymmetric warfare in the sense that hackers have to be right only once, while you have to be right 100% of the time. That's a very powerful message when you start telling, uh, I think this is a public knowledge, but uh, when JP Morgan went through the phishing training for their 60,000 employees, and uh, this was an article in Wall Street Journal, so you can read up. They did uh, outsource the testing of uh, how good this training was. And the same user base which went through the training and they asked a false uh, phishing email to be sent one week after this training was done, and the click rate was 12%. And people say, what were you thinking when you clicked it? You just went through the training. And you still again click, and then the answer was, well, I was just curious what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you cannot make everything idiot-proof. Only thing you can do is try to give them bite-sized chunk that they can understand. And the only thing they can understand is that you have to be right all the time, hackers have to be right one time. And that message, when it gets uh, honed in, they will start thinking about every activity that they do. Oh, is this right or is this not right? And that's the only way you can change behavior. Changing the behavior is very hard. And if you uh, watch that founder's movie from McDonald's, uh, how it was founded and all those things, they have tough time how to get people out of the car to go to the counter to order their burger, as opposed to what used to be the norm. You pull over and people come to take your order. That minor change took them so many cycles to get there. So this is like similar kind of thing. How do you make the everybody who is participating in this uh, cybersecurity warfare to be the foot soldier and not have the Trojans coming through the uh, moats and castles that we have built so far? Yeah, but it, it isn't just change. So it isn't just changing like your behavior, your users. So I can tell you, it's not just changing your behavior though. Um, like so, take like we've been focusing a lot on phishing. I think probably because today was pretty much destroyed by phishing. Um, well, not with that and the loose internal networks of enterprise. It's a very complex problem. It, it, it's a lot less. It's a lot more complex than WannaCry was like a month ago. That was actually easy compared to this. Um, the but for phishing, like you, there's actually technical there's actually technical solutions for phishing. It has nothing to do with analyzing words and emails or anything along those lines. Like. There's three D, there's three DNS configuration settings, like three. Like it's really just three. I mean, you do that and you're gonna like lose a lot of email coming in. Most of it's gonna be spam, like and, and phishing stuff. But this is a thing where you can't convince IT people and the people in the companies, the people from marketing um, that you should actually have those have those settings done because you'll actually stop getting emails coming in. You might lose one user's email at the same time, or three users' email or whatever. But there are some very technical solutions you can put in place to stop certain things, but you can't even convince the people that you that can push those buttons, change those settings, enable those things to be able to do that. Like you can literally almost stop it in most organizations if you just do a handful of things. But we're just really, really slow to change things where we don't communicate well back to the folks about stuff about how to do things. So this isn't just about the individual users, it's also about like that taking that step back and helping people understand how to architect stuff understand things, how to do that defensive stuff as well, too. There's a lot of different layers to that, that are trying to convince people what, what to do or what not to do. Um, 
this isn't a very coherent thought, but uh, so we recently had a report about uh, an endpoint that wasn't properly validated. Uh, we fixed that endpoint. Uh, there was no exploit, but it was still something that we should have validated. Um, and maybe somebody smarter than I could have found an actual exploit uh, from that. Uh, after that, we talked to the developer who wrote it, um, and we have inside of our company a lot of like application security different practices. Some of those are rules, some of those are the metrics, uh, and some of those are like security mindset, which I think is like a uh, Snyder coined term. Um, that is a Snyder.com has Snyder on security, uh, who I just found a link to that says teaching the security mindset, which I looked at two days ago and it seems interestingly related to this. Like, how do you teach people to care about things instead of teaching teaching them like uh, don't click on these things and do these other seven hundred things, uh, rather remember all those seven hundred things. Um, it's sort of like teaching people to to care or like to classify the data and figure out what's most important or to protect the things that's safe or that type of thing. Um, that's like evolving over time. Uh, I haven't actually seen the term security mindset really referenced much in the last, uh, recently. Um, but as, as companies like, how do you teach people to care about data? Or like, does what I just said tie into anything you guys just said? Um, are you seeing changes in companies that, uh, I use that as specific to application security is what I was thinking about uh, in the past couple of days. But, you, you probably get a lot more companies than I do. I mean, I, I'll just, I will give you my cynic response. No. Um, that's, I mean, like, I'm, I've been out of enterprises for a few years now. I was nice and isolated to a research place before I'm nice and isolated into a research place right now. Um, but I can tell you that there, no one incentivizes people to care about this, the stuff that they want to. The, basically, everyone goes, and this is, I mean, I, they might, they're, these guys might have a different perspective on this, but. We're so focused on, and I hate to say, this sounds so trite, but I don't, I don't mean it tritely. We're so focused on the compliance checkboxes that if PCI says we're all green, and if Heather says we're all green, and all these other regimes say we're all green, everyone just, like, people actually use that as a litmus test for everything's all good, whether everything is all good, or you just have a pretend intelligence. Whether you're just setting a false front and making everything look like it's okay, whether it really is okay, people believe what those things actually say, and for the most part, none of those compliance things actually give you any more things. So that from the top down, there's just blanket assumptions being made, and that's one reason why they don't care because they think they don't have to because everything's okay. Um, we just it's that not telling people just how not okay things really are and how bad things really can possibly be given away currently things are. Okay. At least that's been my perspective on a lot of different organizations. The same thing is you know I wouldn't care about the classification because we have. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, but, you know, that can't be true for, you know, maybe more true for management side than it is for the engineering side of things. So I often advocate for our engineering leadership uh, who instinctively care about, I don't know, anything more than technical things. But uh, advocating up to, you know, where money is involved to our CFO takes a little bit more effort. I think one of the things you actually just pointed out is really critical. And I don't know if people talk about this often, but the folks that are really concerned about these things aren't necessarily getting the access they need to the top levels of C-suite. And an argument can be made that they need to be there for one reason, and that is, and you may have not been referring to it in this context, but as a business leader who's interested in revenues and brand and getting customers, I don't want my employees focusing on being scared. That's important. They need to be focused on having an open mind and looking around themselves to see what's going on with the industry so that they can keep up with Amazon. We frequently have this exact conversation about whether or not what information to disseminate down as far as like office physical security policies and things like that. 
sometimes make decisions to try to take that decision away from people so they don't have to like stress out about a million metrics or whether or not the random guy in the kitchen is actually supposed to be there or uh, by the way I work at a fixed person company so like I can advocate to anybody in the company and I know all of them. Right. Um, it's a little different when you are larger. Well, again, the point is, is really important here, which is to say, why do you need security professionals in the C-suite? You need them because you don't want anybody else to have to worry about this all the time, and you don't want them having to go through everybody else who has a completely different focus on the job. And we want them not necessarily focusing on being scared. Right? As, as an organization, you don't want your people to be continuously worried and scared about everything they're doing. They should be focusing on making more money. In the end, and again, I, I, I hope I'm not offending anything, anybody, but security is a cost center. It's not generating revenue, it's protecting revenue. And that's critical and very important. Um, but in that case, you want the people who are protecting you to have access and, and be able to make the decisions that are needed to do that. Um, that, to me, is a really good argument to go up to the C-suite and say, Either we go to your other people and inhibit their own innovation, or you let us just do this for them. And you take them completely out of the equation. And I think that's an important opportunity that a lot of companies probably need to take. Um, like I said, um, I, I wouldn't want my team that I have focusing on our clients and all these other things continuously worrying about our email thread. But we get emails all the time from Booz Allen, to be honest with you, that tell us, be careful about this, be careful about that. We get consistent trainings. Um, we spend more of our time on security-related trainings, ethics-related trainings, FTC, everything. You can't imagine how many trainings we have to go through because we are a government contractor. But, you know, that's a mindset. Are we by, you know, effectively inhibiting their own innovation in that regard? So, I can, I can see, see where people, people would be concerned about changing their mindset, but maybe that's what we need. Leaders to have more of a presence at the higher levels. Yeah. So, one thing that Willing uh, Constance, one of the GE's uh, ex so uh, he asked me that uh, in the conversation we were talking, and he said that most of the C suites, they are only interested in finite answer. And if there is a ransomware attack somewhere happening, and then the they'll have a meeting and they will come down and ask the CISO. So, uh, how safe are we? Is this the kind of thing that could happen to us? And what we are expecting is the answer is, no, nothing will happen to us. We are 100% secure. And CISO, in their deep down in their heart, they know that there is nothing like 100% secure. So now, how do you answer those kind of questions, which is not quantifiable? Now, you answer it in probabilistic terms, or you answer it into some sort of risk terms, and that is where management needs to change the mindset, right? That this is a constant or ever-evolving thing. And that is where the employee as well as the management both have to work together to figure out what is the right message, what is the right way to communicate. Because CISO is communicating to CISOs in a way that is detrimental, that if the person answers that less than 100%, he or she will not be there the next day, right? So that fear, is not going to elicit the right answer. <laughs> so, this is like a chicken and egg situation in that sense that how do you go and then have an honest conversation? Because are you willing to accept what the reality is? With that, uh, I want to thank everyone here uh, for joining us this evening at uh, Analytics Club Boston. We're going to have 30 minutes of networking, so feel free to come up and talk to the panelists.
uh, introduce yourself, network, um, you know, these types of events uh, we're trying to do on a monthly basis, so please keep an eye out. Um, also, all of our panelists here are hiring, so check out their profiles on the Meetup page, uh, go to their career pages. Uh, they're all growing at, uh, at different levels and need different types of skills. Um, so the folks here are definitely the types of uh, people that we're looking for. So uh, thank you again, and uh, see you at the next Analytics Club Boston event. Thanks. Homesick, never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain